I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. There will be a mass march. There is no doubt about and that. And it is our purpose and it is our hope that this march will uh, carry on in a manner that will be definitely uh, and, and effectively in support of the civil rights program. Freedom Now Movement, hear me. We are requesting all citizens to move into Washington. The movement that had learned to mobilize communities now set about trying to mobilize a nation. It's from the documentary series Eyes on the Prize, and the first voice you heard was A. Philip Randolph, who created the idea of the march. Sixty years ago, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom inspired 250,000 people to gather for the public demonstration, at the time one of the biggest marches in the country's history. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his now-famous speech, I Have a Dream, at the Lincoln Memorial just weeks after President John F. Kennedy called civil rights a moral issue. Next week, Monday, is the 60th anniversary of the 1963 March on Washington. What is the legacy of this seminal event in this moment of continued efforts to roll back civil rights gains and at a time of increasing violent racial tension? Joining me now, Jane Bowers, a Boston resident who attended the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Hi, Jane. Hi. Also with me, Cortland Cox, civil rights activist who helped organize the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. He was a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. Hello, Cortland. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. And also with me, Byron Rushing, former Massachusetts State Representative and President of the Roxbury Historical Society. Welcome back, Byron. It's good to be here with you. Well, I want to uh, just lay a little groundwork so that you know people can have a, a, a foundation for the conversation. So as we said, 250,000 people, the expectation was that it was going to be violent. Of course, it was not. It was a um, nonviolent, huge demonstration. Um, and people came from all over, uh, inspired, really, uh, within 90 days, which is amazing to have that much response um, for folks to come. Now, Cortland, you were doing some of the organizing of getting people from the South to know about the march and to participate in the march. I want you to set the table about what folks were facing at that time, which inspired them to get on those buses and go to the demonstration. Yes, uh, in 1963, you've got to remember, in 1963, Medgar Evers was murdered. You had the children's crusades in, in Birmingham. You had, you know, the, the sit-ins had been going on. The freedom riots had been going on. And most of the people who were engaged in the day-to-day -day activities, particularly also around voter registration, were people in the South. And actually, the, the, the march was organized in eight weeks. And what it was very clear that the, the people in the South, in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, other Florida, other places like that, really was sick and tired of the racial and economic exploitation. 
So you had within eight weeks, uh, people coming to exceed A. Phillips Randolph's call for 100,000 people to come to Washington. So there, there, there was a dynamism, or there was a sense that people needed to speak about what was going on in their lives. And that's why they came to Washington with such short notice. Mm. Jane Bowers, you were um, just out of college, really, in 1963. You'd graduated in 1962, living in New York City, active in civil rights. Uh, What about um, the call to come to Washington inspired you to go? I thought it was a wonderful opportunity to put my feet where my heart was to speak uh, in support of civil rights, to join all the other thousands of people who wanted to see the United States make some moves towards civil rights. And it was very possible in New York. I went up to 125th Street and got a ticket for a bus with a group. I think it was an NAACP bus. And that's how I went. And you were part of the approximately 25 percent of white people who had attended the march. People tend to think that only black people attended the march, but actually there were a number of white people as well. There were. Mm-hmm. I sat next to a young man on the bus who was, uh, his job was selling Bibles. <laughs> but he was a full of spirit, wanting to be supporting the civil rights movement. <clears throat> And I was, too. And all the way down, there were people to weigh that on the side of the roads. Hmm. So, Byron Rushing, you were working. um, You didn't make the march. You were working for CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, headed by uh, James Farmer. He had been arrested the week before, so he wasn't attending as well. Um, Give me, again, the kind of the assessment that uh, Cortland did about what was happening in the country at that time that made that march and that uh, that uh, opportunity to demonstrate um, so powerful for a lot of people? The organizers of the march saw this as uh, uh, an important opportunity to put pressure on the United States government, um, especially on the president. Uh, and, uh, and, and also, I think Ethel Randolph uh, really... Uh, wanted to, to have that second march. You know, the first march, of course, he uh, invented and was successful before it happened. And so it didn't have to happen. And that was the integration of the of industries in World War II uh, uh, by Roosevelt. And so all of that was going on. People were organizing in the, in the North and the South. I was organizing in the North and upstate New York. Uh, and we decided uh, that the publicity uh, that would that would be occurring the next day in Syracuse would be too focused on Washington and not focused enough on what was going on in Syracuse and, and attempting to end urban renewal uh, in Syracuse. And so we decided to stay in Syracuse and have a, dem- a local demonstration and close down uh, one of the sites where buildings are being torn down for renewal. So there were a couple things that happened at the march that we need to highlight um, before we talk about now and its legacy. Um, one is that uh, John Lewis, um, some people may know him um, as the uh, congressman, 
Um, but he was a part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and had written quite, for the Times, a, a fiery speech um, and then toned it down out of deference to A. Philip Randolph. As we've said, this was his um, really something that he wanted to see uh, go through well. And so out of deference to him, he toned it down. I want to give people a sense of what John Lewis did keep in his speech, though, which definitely had a tone. This is John Lewis. The time will come when we will not confine our march into Washington. We will march through the South, through the streets of Jackson, through the streets of Danville, through the streets of Cambridge, through the streets of Birmingham. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. So that was John Lewis's toned down speech. Um, the other thing that came out of that march, and of course, it's now thought of only for some people in the context of Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, I Have a Dream speech, um, which was not even thought of as something that was going to be important uh, on the program that day. I just want to make that clear to my audience. Um, it, it just was one of those moments that happened and it turned into something else. So for those who've never heard the speech, here's an excerpt from Martin Luther King Jr.'s original I Have a Dream speech. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. Byron Rushing, you are very, very concerned, as many others are, that that speech tied to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King has been used now by folks to suggest that he was far less the radical that he was and to take away from what was being asked um, of the government uh, by the people who traveled so far to get to Washington. The march was for jobs and freedom. That really was about the, the essence of Reverend King's speech, but there's been some derailment. Talk about, you know, what happened then and, and put it in the context of today. Kelly, that is so important. And I hope that uh, going forward, we can uh, get people uh, to give the full title of the march when we talk about this anniversary that we are approaching. Uh, and I think that uh, the... Um, what what is I think that this is a difficult thing to celebrate um, because of of how much has happened between then and now, and the fact that uh, uh, we have made uh, Martin Luther King a saint. I don't speak at any events around the march that have a young person get up and give the speech. I want young people to give to stand up and give John Lewis's speech. I want people to stand up and and give the 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 pledge that was made uh, at at the end of of the march that was written by A. Philip Randolph, and he allowed Rustin uh, to uh, introduce that and say those words and get everybody to say yes, we'll do that. Now I think the march uh, at one level was very radical, and and everyone in America has worked to make it less and less and less radical to this very day. So it's hard to celebrate something that right now, 
I think, is um, uh, has no meaning. I think the average American believes uh, that uh, the March on Washington was Martin Luther King's speech and that uh, he became a saint the next day and you never needed to worry about him again. Mm. So, Jane, um, what is true, in addition to what uh, uh, Byron has uh, said, is that this was a moment. Um, Cortland named all of the things that were happening in the context of the wider context of civil rights organizing, some of the, the tragedies and the traumas um, that were happening. But when the march happened, because it was nonviolent, because it was such a tremendous response, it was looked upon as a triumph, a kind of hopeful movement. And that's even without considering um, Reverend King's speech. So at the time when you were there, was that hope, that that uplift, did you feel that? Or did you feel people kind of, well, I'm, I, I want it to be uh, something that I can hold on to, but I'm not sure that this is going to change anything. Well, you know, as I look back over these 60 years, I certainly felt that it was a true triumph. I certainly felt that I had participated in something very important. I wasn't aware of there ever having been anything similar at, in Washington, and I thought it was just great. And the weather was good, and people were happy, and people were feeling very, very much like they had done something worthwhile. For me, the primary thing was a quarter of a million people are coming together to make this country stop being quite so racist. Did you think that it that it managed to get the America's attention? I'm going to just be broad about it, um, at least in that moment. Oh, I do think so. I do think so. My then husband was at a conference, so he wasn't there to hear the speech. I was quite sleepy, and so I fell asleep when the speech began. But he could practically tell me word for word what he had heard. And we heard it from many, many people over time after that. Uh, and and it was a, there was a, a general feeling of triumph. Among the white pro-civil rights people who were part of my life and the black civil rights people who were. Mm -hmm. I think Jane is making a, a, a very good distinction. Um, I think it, I think it was amazingly uplifting for the people who had already begun to engage in uh, civil rights and the liberation of black people. It was absolutely had no effect on the South. White white people white people a month after this event, white people white people blew up a church and, and killed four children. So mm -hmm. it had don't and so I think it's very important that we make a distinction between the white people. Never say this had an effect on white people. It had an effect on it. At a moment, it seems, maybe a majority of white people, but it certainly did not have an effect except the negative concern um, by Southern white people. Mm. Uh, Cortland, how would you, how would you assess it? Um, there appears to be both things happening, both and, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you're seeing, what was happening then is really the fight for the heart and soul of America. Which way would America go? Because remember, after the 1954 Supreme Court decision, the South and in many places, a lot of places in the North decided to engage in massive resistance. And I think what exploded and really was the force that 
really went against the the frame of reference, which is now called Trumpism, is you know the sit-ins and the young people decided all the liberate speed and massive resistance from the South was not something that they were going to live with. And the good thing about today is that while we were only could protest in 1960 and 63 and 65, we can now be in power. So there were some concrete um, legislation. There was concrete legislation that, that came after the March on Washington. The Civil Rights Bill was passed um, after President Kennedy's death and then the Voting Rights Bill. And those were foundational pieces in terms of moving toward um, moving um, Black Americans out of second-class citizenry. And now some of the issues, the very issues that were turned back that prevented folks for, from living full lives with all of their civil rights and all of their voting rights, once again, are the issues. So people are fighting for voting rights again and fighting for, in many cases, basic civil rights, Byron. Um, so 60 years hence, how do you assess the progress? You see, I think for half of the slogan of the title of the march, we made a major progress, and that was the freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, although we still have those T-shirts that the kids wear now called free-ish. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was the jobs part that was a complete failure. And uh, and so, and, and as you see it now, there's been no progress in the disparity um, between uh, white uh, and uh, black uh, wealth uh, and income uh, in, in all of these years. Uh, and that, uh, of, of course, is something that Martin Luther King understood at the near the end of, of, of his tragic life of the of, of his by the time of his assassination, and that was working on jobs and uh, and and jobs for everybody that was poor in this country. Jane, how do you see how do you assess the progress from the 60th, given that you had a lot of hope at that moment? I did. And my memory of having been on the march was something that I turned to for hope on lots of occasions. There's been lots of ups and downs. I've been involved here in Boston, and there are, I have to say, in the last few years, we've been looking at our own history in Boston, which has got some things to be very ashamed of. Um, But it's not, things are not complete. The uh, progress that we've made is minimal compared to what it ought to be. So, Cordland, um, looking forward past these 60 years, understanding we're still dealing with some of the same issues, what's what do you say must be on the, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom anniversary agenda? Well, I think the fight that we have right now is whose definition is going to frame the, how this country proceeds. We now need to take responsibility, political responsibility for our lives and make sure that those who want to hurt us never have the power to do so. So that's why we need to be engaged very deeply in political action. So I'm going to ask one last question of all of you, because I think um, sometimes people wonder um, what's the motivation for folks like yourselves to keep fighting? To, be, to have been organizers, to have been people who pushed 
back against um, the the systems that were unequal, and it continued to do it for a long period of time. Um, I'll start with you, Byron. Why? For me, it has been just over and over again um, seeing how horrible people can be, but also how good people can be, and trying to side with the people who are good and want justice. And and I've been inspired by all the other people who have tried to do that and have sacrificed so much for that. And I just hope that I continue in my last few years uh, following them. Jane? Well, one of the things that I have been trying to pay attention to is I have to keep on learning. I keep on coming up to places where I am very positive about effects that have happened, but then uh, something will draw my attention to some continuing deep, unchanged uh, racism that exists and that we have to work with. I look for ways to try and keep on doing that. And I never run out of finding new ways. Hmm. Cortland. When we were younger, we used to say the struggle continues, but now I much more appreciate, you know, what that statement has to be, because as long as we're alive, we have to keep on fighting to make sure that the kind of equality and the kind of diversity and the kind of of democracy that we've been asking, trying to say for, we're the ones who have to make the fight. And I've been fortunate, my SNCC veterans and the SNCC veterans who have been there for the past 63 years, those who have not passed, or those who, who don't have, uh, you know, uh, Alzheimer's and so forth, still continue the battle. Well, we'll have to leave it there. I want to thank all of you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Jane Bowers is a Boston resident who attended the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Cortland Cox is a civil rights activist working with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who helped organize the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And Byron Rushing is a former Massachusetts state rep and president of the Roxbury Historical Society. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and Miriam Hydara, who is also our intern. Our engineer is Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.